Have you ever wondered what goes on behind the scenes of the restaurant industry? I'm Katie Osuna, the host of Copper and Heat, the James Beard award-winning podcast that explores the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurants. Each episode is a narrative deep dive asking questions like, why do we tip? Why are restaurants so financially precarious? Why are tasting menus a thing? And what do restaurant awards really say about what's good? Hear from chefs, restaurant workers, food anthropologists, and more. Find Copper and Heat wherever you listen. The Global North's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the Global South. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. A taste of place, of time, of space, of memory. How do we find a way to belong, a way to look at the past and to build a future? My name is Dr. Anna Sulan Mussing, and I hope to answer those questions as we explore taste and memory throughout this series. Welcome to Taste of Place, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. In our last episode, we learned about the trade route of Sarawak pepper from the contemporary farm to the metropolitan table. In this episode, Heat and Flavour, we explore the chemistry behind what flavour is, what flavour means to us culturally, and how pepper is able to tantalise our taste buds. I speak with food scientist Dr Ariel Johnson and food writer Ligaya Mishan to find out about the science and the romance behind pepper and flavour. Now that we are familiar with the commodity of pepper and the way this ingredient and plant has been essential in forming a global structure of trade, it's time to delve into the core question of taste of place. How does the past, our idea of nostalgia, shape our concept of ourselves and the world around us? To begin answering this question, we need to start defining pepper as a flavour. How does understanding the mechanics of flavour provide insight into our personal relationships with each other? To look at the science behind it all, I sought out an expert on flavour. Hi, I'm Dr. Ariel Johnson. I'm a scientist and scholar of flavour. It's something I both study, teach, and apply creatively to food innovation at restaurants. I'm calling from Brooklyn, New York. What does pepper mean to you? Where to begin? The interesting thing is absolutely everything about it. But the first thing that comes to mind is that pepper has one of my favorite flavor molecules in it. That's a sesquiterpene called rotundone. It's super potent. It was discovered actually in red wine, in Syrah wine, which often has black pepper notes. They had for a long time not been able to identify where they came from until they got instrumentation sensitive enough to find this molecule and then immediately found it in black pepper as well. Special flavor, special molecule, definitely. Is there any other food or drink that comes to mind? 
I guess I put pepper on just about everything savory, but it probably plays the biggest flavor role just in terms of how much it stands out to me when I make cacio e pepe and when I make scrambled eggs. Yeah, just really good eggs with a lot of black pepper. Pepper is almost like an equal with the eggs. As for myself, for a long time, pepper was one of those things I used to find overpowering that I only used as a base in cooking. Onions, salt, pepper. But almost avoided at other times, except for on scrambled eggs. Peppercorn steak was never an order I would make. I only tried cacio pepe in the last few years. But as I started looking into pepper and finding the various flavors and scents of different peppers, I truly fell down a rabbit hole. Despite spending the last decade researching pepper, I still can't wait to try more. I now get very excited about cracking pepper whilst cooking. The idea of learning to love something and understanding the inner workings of flavor is something Ariel explains to me in our conversation. But first, I needed to know, what is flavor? Flavor, to me, is a multi-sensory perception, mostly constructed from our senses of smell and taste. Our chemical senses, we create perceptions of smell and taste based on sensing molecules. It is this intimate relationship between smell molecules, taste molecules, and different perceptions and connotations in our brain. We use a lot of our brain to process flavor. I mean, we have initial input areas of our brain that process smell as its own sense and taste as its own sense. Those recruit areas from the limbic system to give us kind of our emotional memories and shadings to those perceptions. And then we also use our language centers, lots of cognitive sort of higher parts of the brain as well. We understand flavor as almost unconscious or pre-conscious emotions and memories, as well as references to other things we've tasted and smelled before, in addition to our emotional connections to those things. And then finally, as tertiary levels of language and description. Understanding comes at a bunch of different levels when it comes to flavor. Ariel has such a unique approach to the idea of flavor. I was curious how she got into this research, how that affected her understanding of food, and what makes a flavor taste good. Ariel tells me that she became interested in food whilst she was doing a bachelor's degree in chemistry at New York University. At the time, there was a set of collaborative lectures between the chemistry department and the food studies department and some downtown New York chefs. And that's where it all began. I sort of talked my way into their meetings and hung around until they were like, yeah, sure, you can research with us for your bachelor's thesis. I got super into it, into thinking about molecules and mechanisms and how that did stuff for cuisine and gastronomy. I moved to California and started doing a PhD and tried out a few different areas, but became very, very into flavor, both perceptually and chemically. So I did a PhD where I was doing a lot of gas chromatography, mass spectrometry to essentially count smell molecules, and then a lot of formal descriptive sensory analysis. 
essentially using a panel of trained humans as sensors to say what flavors were in things and at what intensities, and then building multivariate statistical models to figure out which molecules were most correlated to which flavors and build this chemical sensory joint understanding of the flavors of things. But what makes flavor good? The scientist in me would say that good flavor is an aesthetic question. And so science cannot really make any determinations about the nature of what that is. What we can do is identify things that we think are good and then use chemistry or sensory science to figure out what properties of things correlate to that. And the less academic part of me will say that I've just, by my own sense of pattern recognition, trying to draw connections between what people tend to say is good flavor. I think it tends to relate to intensity of flavors. So things with a lot of flavor at the forefront, complexity of flavors. So things with a more broader suite of of flavor molecules in them. Flavor tied to the original processes that usually create it. So using techniques at least on the molecular and biochemical level with heat or with enzymes or microbes that we've always used to create flavors. A lot of the way that I work with flavor in restaurants is making connections between what cooks intuitively know about flavors and complement that with chemistry or microbiology or some other discipline that has looked at the same thing in a slightly different way and can bring a little bit of like mechanistic understanding to things. One example might be fermentation. Fermentation, microbiologically defined, is the transformation of ingredients by microbes. But from a flavor perspective, you are coaxing certain microbes to grow and then in exchange, they create new flavors for you on a molecular level which is quite exciting in the kitchen because typically you don't create flavors unless you are browning or roasting something. Your ingredients come in with a certain amount of flavor and it's on you not to lose that flavor. But when you ferment stuff, you are creating acids and umami and different funky and floral and other flavors. I tend to talk to chefs about what flavor profiles they like and then figure out which conditions we'd need to tweak or dial in to get there to get like more acidity or less acidity or a funkier flavor or less funky flavor or like more umami or a better balance. If we're like trying to get a certain flavor in a restaurant, it needs to be amazing, but we need to be able to get to it multiple times and then also communicate how to get there to others who can execute on it and do their jobs. When I'm cooking at home, I tend to be a lot looser and tend not to do the same thing twice. When we're eating and trying to understand the food that we eat, is there a framework with which we can understand flavor and how to talk about it? If we were to do a tasting of pepper, how do we go about understanding the sensation, what we're experiencing? There's two halves of that for me. So if we're talking about pepper specifically, one of the first things we can do is separate things that we are sensing by taste and touch versus things we are sensing by smell. Most of flavor is actually smell. The things that come from taste are really just sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and umami, and there's probably taste sensations for lipids and other things. With pepper, bitter will come into it. The other ones, not so much. Spicy is actually not a taste. It comes from our sense of touch. So there are molecules, one of which is called piperine in the pepper that stimulate one of our pain receptors. 
So we are physically experiencing pain when we're eating something like pepper or chilies or ginger all have molecules like that. So besides differences of intensity and bitterness and difference of intensity in spiciness, most of the differences and nuance and characteristic interesting stuff in pepper is going to come from smell. What I'd like to tell people is that when I say smell, we think of sniffing, having something in front of your face and smelling it. But there's actually a secondary route by which we can smell with food in our mouths. We're able to smell breathing in because the nasal cavity and the back of the throat are all connected. It's like one open space. So while you're eating, you have food in your mouth and those smell molecules are actually wafting up the back of your throat and being sensed inside your nasal cavity as smell. Your brain just plays a kind of translocating trick on you that it feels like it's coming from inside your mouth, but it's actually coming from your nose. It's weird. Fascinating, but weird. Both by sniffing and having food in your mouth, we're experiencing smells. And so for pepper, most of the differences in like dryness and woodiness or like floral or spicy aspects are going to come from aroma. Once we've had that established and we're kind of separating, well, is this a taste sensation or is this a smell sensation? Humans are extraordinarily good at sensing flavor differences, but humans are extraordinarily bad at naming flavor differences. A lot of it is cultural. We don't, at least in Euro-British American culture, especially Anglo-American culture, just don't talk about flavors a lot. Maybe in wine, we'll discuss flavors, but it's not something we're discussing in a lot of detail besides like, is it good or is it bad? We all pretty much have the capacity for noticing differences. It just gets tricky to put words to that. Fortunately, that almost all comes down to exposure and practice. So if we were tasting a bunch of different peppers, tasting side by side, it's cool to have two or three or four examples of something and smell them side by side and you'll be able to tell that they're different. And if you sit and marinate on it for a while, you can usually find some words that bubble up to describe what that is. And then the more that you do that, the better you get at it. So you might be able to sit down, smell something and say, I definitely get cedary and dry kind of resinous notes from it. This one is much more floral. The way to get there is definitely by paying attention and comparing. Some people literally produce more taste buds than others. So they have more sensitivities to those things. People have genetic variabilities in which smell receptors and how many of them they produce. With taste, we have five types of receptors. It's not like a crazy landscape. It's fascinating. With smell, we have between 250 to 400 different olfactory receptors. So there's a huge patchwork of what you might be more or less sensitive to. And some people that identified rotundone, the pepper flavor molecule, there's some people that basically can't smell it except in enormous quantities. Everyone's hardware setup is going to be slightly different, but generally there's a common core of flavor to things that we can like agree on. This idea of positive association with food to develop flavor memory is really fascinating to me. How can we change our ideas around flavor? Ariel contextualizes it for me by explaining the science behind the flavor of coriander. A famous example, especially like in the US, is cilantro or coriander. I think cilantro is delicious. One of the freshest and grassiest and best herbs we can have. But to a lot of people, it tastes essentially like repellingly soapy two things contributing to it. One is some people just have way too much of one receptor that responds to some of the smells in cilantro. So to them, it is actually like far more intense than to other people. But also if you haven't tasted cilantro and formed positive associations to those flavors, the closest thing that you would commonly have a similar association to is soap or like soapy flavors. 
these aroma molecules called aldehydes, and they're actually biosynthesized as breakdown products of fats, and soap is a breakdown product of fats. So if you don't have a reference point, that's where your brain goes. Smell, especially the smell parts of flavor, are this open-ended guide to fill in for each of us or regionally to be able to find food that is good for us and avoid food that's not good for us. So we fill that in with experience. And when a aroma molecule docks with your receptors and a signal gets sent to your brain, that signal gets passed through the amygdala and through a lot of our emotional processing centers, even before it rises to the level of consciousness. So there's a very tight tie between positive or negative emotions and smells and flavors. My name is Shiloh Maples. I'm Turtle Clan. I'm Anishinaabe. I'm a citizen of the Little River Band of Ottawa. I also belong to the Ojibwe people of Swan Creek and Black River. Welcome to Spirit Plate. In this space, we will talk about indigenous foodways as means of resistance, resilience, and revitalization. Spirit Plate is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com. The concept of reference points and flavor being so much a part of culture resonates with me and represents my pursuit in exploring a taste of place. As someone who grew up in both a Western and a Southeast Asian setting, what I find delicious has been very different to others around me. Over the years, I've also witnessed racism in the UK and New Zealand around food from outside of a Western context, with flavors unique to certain parts of the global south, being referred to as disgusting or worse. What this does is denigrate a culture and therefore people who find these foods delicious. As my good friend and fellow writer James Hansen often quotes to me, when we see such things, don't yuck my yum. With this in mind, in an article that Ariel wrote for Mold magazine, she says, cuisine is one of the most potent ways that cultural groups perform and define themselves and their history. Here, she tells me more about what she means by that. Very broadly speaking, anthropologically, food is a huge part of culture. Cuisine and cooking and meals are sort of like a ritual that you perform over and over. It ties you to location through what ingredients you have access to. It's highly sensory, but it's something that you're literally taking into your body. So that level, it's like very intimate and repetitive. And if people assimilate to other cultures, foods are often, and flavors are one of the things they'll often hold on to the longest. My grandmother will still cook Lithuanian pastries for Easter, even though she has not kept up the language or crafts like embroidery or traditional clothing, which I think her mother was doing, but didn't continue, but the food did. On a perceptual, biological, neurobiological level, besides nourishment, the main experience that you're having when you eat something is flavor, perception of flavor. When you are eating and perceiving flavor, you're constantly both recalling emotional connotations that you formed before to those flavors and sensations which if those are, oh yes, this is what my mother always cooked for me, or ah yes, this is what we always eat on this holiday. The pleasantness and the you know intricacies of the flavor are one thing, but every time you take a bite, calling up these memories and these emotions, you're also adding to those. So through repetition or through emotionally loaded or emotionally comfortable situations, family situations, community situations, it's 
like a constant feedback loop of sensory situations and then emotional connections to those sensory situations. What perceptually happens while you're eating a cuisine with your family or your people is that you are experiencing and tightening all these emotional ties every time that you do it. Through observation, we know that food is very important, but what is culture? You could define it as things that you do a lot that you have positive associations to with people that are near you. So on a more like macro level, there's thousands or millions of people doing the same thing. So they form the same positive associations, but from person to person, you cook a dish, you create an aspect, an instance of a culinary item, and then share it with somebody. And then they're both drawing up their positive connotations to that and building them stronger. In terms of our personal histories, histories within families or other like close ties, you can't really recreate a feeling, but you can recreate or create another instance of a flavor and communicate something to somebody that goes beyond words right to their emotional centers. I love the phrase instances of flavor. It is so hard to find the right way to articulate these binding, relationship-forming moments. And yet flavor and food can do just that. Understanding history, or indeed building histories and creating a culinary landscape of flavors and memory, is something I explore further. So I reached out to food writer and journalist Ligaya Mishan. While Ariel investigates and studies flavor, Ligaya communicates flavor through her writing, which closely follows what Ariel spoke about how we understand flavor through the use of our language centers. I'm Lagaya Mishan, and I write for the New York Times, for uh, Tea Magazine, and also for the food section. I write about food and culture, and sometimes the arts. What does pepper mean to you? I just wrote a piece about chili peppers, which got that name because people from the West wanted them to be <laughs> pepper, because pepper was the key to fame and fortune at the time. But I think that because of that, I often first think of chilies. Pepper, I just think of as an essential. It's in everything. Why wouldn't you put it in everything? Why wouldn't you always want that little hum? I do automatically think of black pepper because for me growing up, white pepper wasn't something that I was aware of being in food that I ate. My background is that my mother's from the Philippines and my father's from England, and I grew up in Hawaii. So there were just a lot of different influences going on. I didn't really think about where things came from. And at the same time, I knew where everything came from. I'm half Filipino and most of my friends were Chinese and, and I lived in a state where there were lots of Japanese and all of these foods, all of these ingredients were present. I knew that the origins of many of the things I ate came from somewhere else, but they were also just the, the daily things I ate. So this idea, they seemed to belong in the West because they were in the West, I was in the West. But I always had a sense that, oh, in the West, we just have stuff from all over the world, everywhere. And also when I would travel, you would see stuff from the West that was in Asia. So I just felt like everything was mingling all the time. Only later did I learn how ugly some of the history of that mingling is. Lagaya wrote a column in the New York Times called Hungry City that featured eating spots and cuisines that were underrepresented in mainstream media which means that some of her readers would have been unfamiliar with the flavours she was writing about. I want to know how she conveys flavour, what that process is for her, and also how she engages with foods and flavours that are new to her. 
I also want to know how she approaches the myriad of ways cooking presents itself in New York City. I often think that the particular restaurants that I wrote about were less formal, sometimes closer to what home cooking could be, or at least that was always the dream. The flavor can be so many things in this context. We have so many ways of approaching it. The purity of really great ingredients grown naturally. There might even be a connection to the person who grew them. Different cultures where they talk about the flavor of somebody's hands, that you know that this person made this dish. Just a home cook, but there's something so special to the way that they make that. And then the chefs who are making food that we've never seen before and introducing us to flavors that we might never understand otherwise. So there's such a range, and that's part of what's exciting about eating. Sometimes we want to eat simply, and sometimes we want to eat something I have no idea and never be able to replicate it. I really love that idea of the flavor of someone's hands. Flavor is such a personal thing, how someone interprets that ingredient or combining things to create a specific thing is their hands. It's lovely. (laughs) So visual. Do you think there is such thing as good flavor? People are drawn to so many different things, which is part of the fun. There are going to be things that we are perhaps predisposed not to like, and someone could change our minds. That's the exciting possibility. Not every flavor is universal, but somebody could change your mind about it. That's lovely. And obviously language is your key into flavor. How do you use language to convey flavor? When you encounter a flavor that is new to you, how do you start to try and unpick those flavors to then explain it to other people? Because I write for the New York Times, we are writing for everyone. Now, of course, everyone includes many different groups of people, for some of whom the food I'm writing about is totally ordinary, something that they eat every day, and to others is a total unknown. Part of my approach is balancing those things to give enough information that the person who knows nothing will learn something, but also not to treat the food as if it is in any way, I mean, this forbidden word, exotic. To whom is it exotic? Lagaier explains to me that most of the things she eats are outside the traditions that she is most familiar with. She is always trying to learn the perspective of the person from who the food or dish is ordinary and to understand and write about it on those merits and to try and teach a little bit to those who are new to it. We have to write about a sensory experience, but all we've got is words. We're constantly trying to communicate things that are amorphous and they end up as just these lines on a page. So I think that there's the problem of describing the food in a sensory way and I think This is why food writers are, at least I fall into this trap of overwriting sometimes, because how do you convey the sensory experience? And you're grasping at analogies and metaphors and adjectives, and it's so easy to pour it on and to do it too much, because you really want someone to know, well, this is what it tasted like, but it's impossible. I did have an editor give me some fantastic advice very early on when I was complaining that I was running out of words. And he said, stop writing about the food which was brilliant. Stop just describing it. Learn about the people who made it. Also, knowing the history of a dish can change the language you use to describe it. I do a lot of research because I feel like my palate might lead me astray. My palate's only familiar with a certain set of flavors. So I'll read to see how does somebody who eats this all the time, how would they describe this? And it's just fascinating the vocabulary out there that exists for describing food. And so then I think about whether my own response fits in with that and whether it makes sense. And what does it really mean? Like when somebody says something is floral or woodsy or herbal, 
you know, what are those notes? For one piece, I talked to a flavor scientist and it was very interesting because of course for her, things really do break down into these very specific compounds. She said something interesting about pepper, which is that for her, she'd grown up in the Midwest and she said the first time that she tasted cracked black pepper, it, she said, it's just another universe. Why would you ever go back? When it comes to pepper, and especially talking about Sarawak pepper, words such as woody and floral have come up a few times. It wasn't until the guy mentioned it here and Ariel's explanation linking creation of culture with repeated instances of flavour that made me think, what does woody even mean? Is my meaning of woody, with my Malaysian and New Zealand and now British reference points, the same as someone else's? I would try to look at specific trees, and obviously then fragrance is part of it. Obviously musky is often said. There is dusty, which sounds negative, or musty, but means something slightly different when I think of it in terms of food. It's not negative, but it gives you a sense there is something like the pages of an old book. I just remember having a box made of mahogany when I was a kid and the smell, or maybe it was cedar. These are slightly different. So I, I think that's where I would try to go deeper. We then discuss flavors and ingredients that are familiar to our backgrounds of Southeast Asia and the complex ways non-Western foods fit into the dining landscapes in cities like New York, cosmopolitan hubs, but also powerhouses of trends. Whenever I've had to describe what pandan tastes like, for example, you can't describe it. And I have all of these crazy phrases I've used over time <laughs> to try to describe what pandan tastes like. And then it just becomes fun. I love durian. Trying to explain to people durian is a delicious flavor. It can be quite difficult. But then I think that does sort of tap into this idea of value and where we place value on food and flavor. This is a complicated issue. In the West, we're accustomed to thinking of a certain set of flavors as being worthy of commanding high prices. French cuisine, we'll do it for Italian. We also think of pasta as a comfort food. So we allow this range for Western cuisines that we don't always in the West allow to non-Western cuisines, right? We're starting to see higher-end restaurants succeeding Chinese and Indian food. There is still, I think, a prejudice against that because people in the West are familiar with that food from early immigrant restaurant renditions of it as just being cheap. But I've thought about this a lot in terms of people talk about also how they love. They love the little restaurants, the little cheap restaurants. But loving those restaurants requires this sort of permanent underclass, right? These restaurants can never charge more, even if pricing of ingredients and labor goes up. But to have them, we need them not to make money. And at the same time, of course, not all of us can spend a lot of money when we go out to eat. So it becomes this very complicated thing where it can be hard to judge food outside of that rubric. We then discuss the idea of the other, the exotic, which is, of course, what pepper was to Europe in the medieval times and beyond. And many spices still occupy that space within the Western world today. Throughout history, we've constantly been drawn to the other. In some ways, everything is other to us. Every encounter is an encounter with another, just some others are more familiar. <laughs> but I remember reading, and I can't remember which philosopher this was, but it was someone who was specifically saying, this moment of eating, it's a moment of possible danger. Every time you eat, something comes inside you that could kill you, theoretically. But you also need it. You need food for survival. Eating becomes a constant encounter with the other. 
And so we're always drawn to throughout history, right? The moment spices appeared in the West, they were like, why did we not know about this? We need more of this. You're right. We are so drawn to the other. There is so much storytelling there that some of it isn't negative or sometimes it isn't a power play. That otherness isn't a power play. Black peppercorns does definitely give a heat. Pepper has become our word for all kinds of heat, right? So Sichuan peppercorns are not pepper either. It's a berry of some kind. I actually just wrote a piece that hasn't come out yet, which is about how during the pandemic in America, sales of hot sauce went through the roof. Everybody suddenly wanted to eat this. And it's something that's been a while coming. You know, there are all of these TV shows that celebrate people eating chilies. In terms of heat, a lot of it is about how much can you take. So there's a macho approach and breeding ever hotter chili peppers. But at the same time, people for whom heat was not a natural part of their diet are becoming more adventurous. This is true of flavors in general. There are things that are a step too far. Maybe Americans will never embrace jellyfish or tendon, but they have started eating things that a few generations ago would have been beyond the pale. So the hope would be that the more broadly we eat, the more interconnected we are. This is very, a very hopeful thing to say. This is a good spot to talk about what isn't pepper. On our first episode, we talked about how peppercorns, white and black, come from the plant peppernigrum. But there are a lot of other plants that are also swept into being labelled as pepper. There are chilli peppers that are part of the capsicum family and are indigenous to Central and South America, thought to have been first cultivated in what we now know as Mexico, around 7,000 BCE. In Kaz Hildebrand's book, An Anarchy of Chilies, the word chili is from the Aztec, Nahuatl language, and pepper was added because Christopher Columbus and his gang thought it was related to the black pepper we're discussing in this season. Columbus's journey to the Americas was in hope of finding a way to the spice islands of Indonesia and other spiced riches in the east. The Chile's migration story is woven with its own stories of colonialism, including Columbus's raping and pillagings of the Americas and the pursuit of capital. After Columbus brought a Chile plant back to Spain in the 1490s, it moved through to the Ottoman Empire via Hungary in the early 1500s and arrived in other parts of Asia via Portuguese merchants. Then there is Szechuan pepper, which is part of the wider Rattusii family, also known as the citrus family. It is a shrub native to China and Taiwan, and most commonly associated, as you can guess by its common name, with Szechuan cuisine. When eaten, it gives a numbing sensation called mala. And pink peppercorn is more closely related to cashew and mango than the black peppercorn, and is from the Andes. The fruit are from the Peruvian pepper tree and are dried, looking a lot like peppercorns. To quote Kaz Hildebrand in her book, The Grammar of Spice, dried, the hollow berries can be used in the same way as pepper, bringing a pleasing fruitiness and a note of pine to a dish. There are other peppers too, including ones within the peppercorn family. The desire for flavour that gives heat seems to be in so many cultures. This desire has travelled the globe many times over, and each of these plants deserve their own space to tell their own stories. With all this in mind, I wanted to know how Lagaya brings in various histories into her writing. If I'm writing about a restaurant, I'll see what seems most important for the story. You can do all the historical research and then talking to historians who then have their own take. But then when you interview people, 
other things come to the fore. You think you're going in one direction, and then you learn something different. There was a restaurant in Singapore that is dedicated to food history. Their lab looks at the cultural history of recipes. I want to know more about that project because how would a restaurant incorporate that? I recently went to a restaurant in Barcelona that uses all of these old recipes. One of the things I ate was this omelet from a recipe from the first century AD. How do you translate? So the other side of it is hoping that readers will respond to that. These might be things they start thinking about. How is this something that chefs or people who are making food? How is this something you could possibly incorporate into the way you cook, and that in turn will reach the audience as well? The Singapore restaurant Lagaya is talking about is Nori. Fun fact. On the trip to Sarawak, I took with my friend, chef and restaurant owner Mandy Yin, that I mentioned in the last episode. We were also accompanied by another friend, Kaushak Swaminathan, who at the time was the head of the lab of Nori. If you're curious about Kaushak's response to Kapit and Sarawak pepper, you can read all about it in Whetstone Magazine, Volume 6. This multifaceted approach to how we think about eating of considering the flavor, the chemistry, the sensations in the mouth. These are all part of my journey investigating pepper. What does pepper mean to me when I eat it? How can I interpret and share those experiences through language or through creating new taste memories? And why is it important? It is important to me because of the many hands that are involved in bringing me the sensations I am experiencing from pepper. And knowing that my eating is part of a wider landscape and narrative. Thank you for listening to episode four of Taste of Place. Thank you to my guests, Dr. Ariel Johnson and Lagaya Mishan, who have helped unravel the scientific and cultural concepts behind flavor and how and why we pursue certain taste experiences. Flavor is not just a single aspect, simply about a meal, but part of a larger cultural story. I'd like to thank my producer, Catherine Yang, audio editor, Diana Kapulong, researcher, Caroline Merrifield, and intern, Ashley Choi. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder, Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer, Celine Glazier, sound engineer Max Cuddlechuck, music director Catherine Yang, managing producer Marvin Yeur, associate producer Quentin Lebeau, production coordinator Shabnam Fadosi, production assistant Maha Saned, and publicist Melissa Horton. Theme music created by Catherine Yang and cover art created by Whetstone art director Alex Bowman. You can learn more about this podcast on whetstoneradio.com on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, on TikTok at Whetstone Media, and subscribe to our Spotify and YouTube channel, Whetstone Media, for more podcast content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com.